0: Welcome to Addicted to Murder. This is Courtney, licensed professional counselor with over a decade of experience.
1: And this is Trisha, and sometimes I have to fight my dinomania. Dinomania. Um That sounds like an obsession with dinosaurs. An irresistible urge to dance. Ooh. Dino. I said that wrong. Dinomania. Dinomania. Yeah. Do you ever struggle with that?
0: I do. Sometimes I just find myself dancing.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not a bad thing. It's not. It's good exercise. Makes you feel good. That's true. Looks yeah. awesome. At the very least, I
0: like tap my foot and things to beats.
1: So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I do that as, as a uh, anxiety habit. Oh. The constant shaking of the leg, tapping of the foot. But. That's a little different. It's not, yeah, it's not dancing. It's my nerves dancing. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So. Well, welcome to Addicted to Murder. Um, we got a new case today. But before we get into that case, Courtney, I've got a quick question for you. All right, shoot. If you could go to outer space, would you? Hmm. That's a good question.
0: I googled question starters.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Or conversation starters.
0: You know, I think that if there was like a very more guaranteed safe way to go to space than there is right now, I would totally do it. Yeah, yeah, Hmm. it would be really cool just to like experience that and to see the world from literally a different point of
1: view. I have no desire to go to space. Yeah, I am fascinated by space and therefore I am scared of it. Um, It's like just so vast and I can't wrap my mind around it. I like to look at like the Hubble telescope pictures and then there's some other newer telescope pictures out there. And like trying to wrap my mind about the around the speed of light, watching all the sci-fi shows I've watched, reading all the sci-fi books I've read, Mm -hmm. I'm like just terrified of it. So not terrified is not the right word. I respect it so much that I stay far away from it. I guess that makes sense. (laughs)
0: Yeah, but I feel like if we got to like some like Star Trek, Wally space life kind of stuff. Well, I try it.
1: I mean, if that's the way it had to be, but if it's an mm-hmm. option, like if I'm one of those billionaires that you know has the option or an offer to go to Mars or whatever, mm-hmm. I, no desire. Mm-hmm. I'm not that um, interested. Yeah, but interesting. Anyways. Okay. Um, well, actually, before we do start this case, Courtney and I have both both have. I don't know. You just said Announcements. I get in announcements,
0: yeah. yeah. So um, in a interesting tw- turn of fate, mm-hmm. both of us decided this year to apply for grad school. And both of us got admitted to grad school. Different ones, of course. <laughs> yep. Different <laughs> schools, different programs. Um, I'm going for my PhD. Trisha's going for her master's. Mm-hmm. Um, but... That's an exciting new thing
1: for us. Courtney is going for clinical psychology PhD? No, it's a counselor education. Counselor education PhD. Mm-hmm. Yep. I am doing forensic psychology right. master's program. Right. Um,
0: and so we are sharing this because our schools start in a, a matter of weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're still not quite sure what that's going to look like in terms of workload and schedules and balancing jobs, and homework, and families, and a podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, So we just wanted to kind of throw out there that we might be experimenting a little bit in terms of our format, um, kind of over the next little while while we figure out what's going to work for us. Right.
1: Um, But I don't know about you, well no, I know Courtney, you've been toying with the idea of getting your doctorate for many years now. Yes. For me, I really was motivated by doing this podcast. Um, The more investigation, investigatory work I have been doing um, for our stories, the more I realized how like fascinating I find it. And so I don't know that I would have at least applied for this type of graduate program had it not been for this podcast. And I'm hoping You know, I'm sort of, at this point, what I'm hoping to do with my degree when I finish it, (laughs) fingers crossed, um, is maybe forensic interviewing. Mm. Um, I did at one point want to be a victim advocate, and that's still something that's there. But um, to me, victim advocacy also sounds a lot like social work, Mm -hmm. and I don't have that in me. (laughs) <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> For that. So I don't know. So um forensic interviewing I've seen quite a few now. Mm-hmm. Um I haven't, of course, participated or anything like that, just, just witnessed some. Um it's just it's a fascinating field and it's fascinating science. So that might be where I end up going. Um, also with a degree in forensic psychology, sometimes people become jury consultants. And right. That also could be Something cool down the road, but or I could start this program and be like, "eh," and not like it, and be like, "nope, never mind." But we won't know until I try. Right, exactly.
0: And you know, the, the name of my degree kind of says it all about where I'm going. So, counselor education is all about kind of learning more about how to train the next generation of of therapists that mm-hmm. will maybe be helping some kids not turn into these serial
1: killers yes because we need a lot of a lot more therapists than we have currently at this time especially ones that are willing to work
0: with like young people
1: Mm -hmm. yeah it's tough to work with young people it is um you have to have that that drive and that knack to be able to make them trust you and to you know get on their level and right it's tough Yeah. But very, very important. So anyways, that's just, we just wanted to give you guys a head up. I know like the past month or two, we've kind of been not slacking, but there's just been a lot of changes going on. Um, I changed jobs. And so that's been um, also struggle, but it's just been a lot going on. So. Right.
0: Yeah. So I know we've missed a few weeks here and there. There have been some spaces in between episodes um and so you might see more of that um or we might find out that
1: grad school's a piece of cake man right exactly (laughs) (laughs) Um, we can do do it all
0: yeah so just want you guys to be aware and to have hopefully be a little patient with us if we're not at our usual pace of releasing an episode every week
1: okay Uh, yeah I mean because it's Anyways, enough on that. We do have a new case today. We do. Um, Courtney picked this one. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about why and blah, blah, blah?
0: Yeah. So I'd heard the name Gary Heidnik before. He's a name that comes up a lot when you just searched serial killers. But I didn't really know his story. Um, But then when I looked kind of reading a little bit about him, um, and I realized that he was... One of the killers used to kind of model Buffalo Bill from *The Silence of the Lambs*. Um, That was just like super intriguing because I love that movie and that story, Mm -hmm. Um, and that character is so insane. (laughs) Um, And so creepy.
1: He's like creepier than Hannibal Lecter, I think. In that, yeah, at least his presentation.
0: Right. It's yeah. just so yeah. bizarre. And his
1: voice, like the inflection in his voice and stuff. Right. The actor was very
0: good. Yes, he was. Yeah. Um, yeah. So then I found this book that we're going to use. Um, it's called Seller of Horror.
1: And it's by Ken Englade. Thank you. It's an older book.
0: It is. Yeah. Um, but it was super interesting. And mm-hmm. so
1: here we are. Okay. Um. Uh, these murders take place in the Philadelphia area, and this is one of the houses that I was trying to get my cousin to take me when I was back east, along with Kermit Gosnell's place of business. And my cousin looked on the map and said, absolutely not. Are we going in those neighborhoods? So <laughs> <laughs> just, to, just to throw that out there. But here we go. Gary Heidnick was born on November 22nd, November 1943 in East Lake, Ohio, which was near Cleveland. His parents were Michael and Ellen Heidnick. He would eventually have a younger brother named Terry, um, so Gary and Terry. They were an unhappy middle-class white family in a suburb of Cleveland. Gary, Gary's parents divorced with Ellen citing, quote, "...gross neglect of duty as the reason." Michael claimed that Ellen was a, quote, "...boozer and a, quote, "...wild woman." The brothers at first went with Ellen for a few years before moving back in with their father... The boys did not get along with their new stepmother. Um, Their relationship with their father was even worse. It should be noted that Ellen would remarry three more times before committing suicide in 1970. Like I said, the book we're using is called *Seller of Horror, and it's by Ken Englade. And it points out that two of Ellen's husbands were black. I'm only stating that because this racial thing kind of comes back into play later on.
0: Right. It's a detail that we might
1: revisit. Yeah. As I said, the boys did not get along with their father. Gary spoke of a time when he wet the bed, and his dad, to humiliate him, made him hang the sheet out of the second-story window for all of the neighbors to see. Courtney, what does this type of humiliation do to a young boy?
0: Humiliation generally leads to two main emotions, anger and shame. And so when a child is publicly humiliated, particularly by a parent who's supposed to protect them, And because of something that they don't have control over, an immense amount of shame can be created because of that. So Gary wetting the bed was likely not something he had any control over, but he was taught that this event was unacceptable and wrong, and that basically he was a bad person because it had happened to him. And then along with the shame comes often a lot of anger or rage towards the person who's causing it. So, I imagine that Gary felt a lot of anger towards his dad after this as well.
1: I would feel anger. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> that was, yeah. So, if Michael thought Gary was very, very bad, you know, he would hang his son out of that second story window, hanging onto him by his ankles. So, his head, so he's like dangling his kid. I'm like showing you guys this and you can't see it by his like ankle with his head pointed down the pavement from a second story window, like just, just scared the shit out of him. It's got to be the reason why. So Courtney, how about that treatment of a young person? I mean, that would absolutely be terrifying and traumatizing
0: to anybody. Um, it could definitely lead to post-traumatic stress disorder. And at the very least, it would likely build a connection between kind of this intense fear and making mistakes or being in trouble. You know, it could lead to distrust or fear of parental and authority figures, understandably, um, and also possibly to the adoption of things like dishonesty or manipulative behaviors to try and avoid mistakes being
1: discovered or you know, avoid being in trouble. Sure, I mean that's a that's a severe punishment. Yes, absolutely. Especially when you're little. I mean, mm-hmm. it's awful for anyone, but one of the few things that small children are afraid of is heights and loud noises. So right. like, that's and just one, falling of the, and, yeah, that's one of the fears we're born with. So that's just got to be so, so awful. So other humiliating things Michael would do to his young sons would be to paint bullseyes on the back of their pants and send them to school like that. Let's talk about Michael. Why do some folks feel the need to embarrass others, especially their own children?
0: You know, it really all comes back to our good friends' power and control. People who abuse others do so because it makes them feel powerful. And often, this need for power is driven by a very fragile sense of self and low self-esteem, leaving them feeling the need to tear others down in order to feel better about themselves. It's kind of that, that classic bully logic. Um, and additionally, when it comes to parents specifically treating their children this way, Parents may resort to humiliation and threats when they feel like they've lost control of their children's behaviors or respect. Um, And then, of course, in more extreme cases, and possibly in this one, we just don't know enough about Michael, um, personality disorders like narcissistic personality disorder and antisocial personality disorder can be at play.
1: Terry claimed that as a young boy, Gary, so Gary's brother Terry claimed that as a young boy, Gary fell out of a tree and hit his head, which ended up changing the shape of his skull. Kids claimed he looked like he had a football head, and his brother claimed that after that tree incident, Gary's personality changed as well. Now, there's speculation of this incident, um, you know, maybe never really occurred as both Terry and Gary would grow up to have. um, Okay, sorry, let me rephrase this. In the book, the author states that there was no proof that this happened, that, that Gary fell out of the tree. Um, so it's, it's basically their words saying that. But both of the kids, Terry and Gary, would grow up to have mental health issues, and many of their stories, um, because of this, are suspect that they might not be true. So it's not the first time we've seen, if it is true, it's not the first time that we've seen head trauma changing a personality or affecting a person later in life. Courtney, do you want to add anything regarding this topic? I'm sort of thinking of Richard Ramirez and Arthur Shawcross, and they both su- suffered you know, various head injuries in their youths.
0: Right. Yeah, as we've seen, you know, head injuries are never a good thing. You know, depending on what part of the brain is injured, um, they can impact different systems that control things like emotional regulation, impulse control, memory, and personality. And then additionally, um, you know, some research has found that a person who's experienced a traumatic brain injury has a 60% higher risk of developing mental health conditions like mood disorders or schizophrenia.
1: And that's kind of what I was trying to say in the last paragraph, but I <laughs> fumbled it up that like his head injury could cause could have helped cause the mental health that he was going to issues that he was going to have down the line, right? People don't believe people when they have. You know, it's just like this cycle. So I don't know if he fell out of that tree. He claims it. His brother claimed it. It would make sense to me if he had a traumatic head injury based on what happens in the future. Absolutely. As Gary grew up, he joined the scouts and he dated a little bit. He was pretty shy, so that part of his life was somewhat limited. He was fascinated by the world of business. He studied what he could get his hands on and would read the business section of the paper religiously. He was also very interested in the armed forces. He had ambitions to go to West Point. His dad managed to send him to a military school in the ninth grade. He scored exceptional remarks and was a model student during, this t- during his time there. Sometime during his high school years, Gary claimed that he visited his first shrink. That was his word. No real information could be found about this visit or subsequent visits, but he was not given medication at this time. He ended up leaving the military school his junior year and attempted to go back to regular school, but ultimately dropped out and joined the Army. Gary did well in the army. He was trained as a medic and served his time. While in the army, he became somewhat of a loan shark. He was very good at saving his money, and so he decided to make an income by letting others borrow it. Unfortunately for him, he was transferred to a German base before he could collect the outstanding debts owed to him. So he lost like $5,000 on loans he had not been able to collect on and that's a lot of money in I know that's a yeah I mean I'm envious of anyone who's good at saving because I struggle with that (laughs) so like dang while in Germany in 1962 Gary started experiencing odd symptoms he was seen by a doctor for dizzy spells blurred vision in one eye and headaches he was constantly nauseated and often he would vomit he had also developed a tick where his head would jerk he was diagnosed with both gastroenteritis and a mental health condition. They suggested either schizoid or schizophrenic. Courtney, can you tell us the difference between you know being a schizoid and being a schizophrenic? And are the symptoms that I mentioned typical of that? I thought delusions or hallucinations were needed to have schizophrenia.
0: So there are a few things to discuss here. So first of all, I'm not a medical doctor, but those symptoms sound a lot like migraines to me. Um, you know, and no, there is no known connection between migraines or those physical symptoms and schizophrenia. Schizophrenia technically, or has like very few physical manifestations. It's mostly um, psychological. Um, and then secondly, you're correct that for a diagnosis of schizophrenia by today's standards, the presence of hallucinations or delusions is required. However, back in 1962. Psychiatrists were still using the very first edition of the DSM, which only had three categories. Things could be physical or biologically based, like a brain tumor. Um, they could be psychotic, like schizophrenia, or they could have be a neurotic disorder, like anxiety or depression. So, schizoid and schizophrenia had different meanings back then than they do now, and pretty much everything that didn't fit. Neatly into a biological thing or like a neuroses, they just called schizophrenia. Um, It was sort of the catch all label. Now, in modern times, the DSM 5 separates schizophrenia as a psychotic disorder that presents with distorted thinking and perception, like delusions and hallucinations, bizarre behaviors and language, um, and changes in emotion and affect. Whereas schizotypal, formerly known as schizoid, personality disorder is, well, it's a personality disorder, um, in which a person has consistent traits of paranoia, distrust of others, bizarre behaviors or interests, and some social isolation, but they don't necessarily have to have, like, the thinking and perceptual problems. Now, as for Gary, there must have been, I hope, other things that his doctors observed besides headaches and dizziness in order for him to be given and to be able to keep a schizophrenia diagnosis as time went on.
1: And maybe there was, this was just what was available in the book. Exactly. Well, two months later, he was sent back to the States, to the hospital at Valley Forge. And by this time he was complaining, complaining of seeing things move. He was discharged and was considered 100% mentally disabled. He then moved to Philadelphia, where he got his LPN certificate, Licensed Practical Nurse Certificate, and enrolled in the University of Pennsylvania, taking many classes. I don't know if back then it was an Ivy League school, but it is now. Um, He got a job at the University of Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania Hospital as an orderly, but he would eventually lose that position due to being messy, basically. He then tried his hand at psychiatric nurse program, but that only lasted four months. Gary's mental health was deteriorating. During the years between 1962 and 1987, Gary would attempt suicide multiple times, and he did it in a variety of ways. Once, he drove his motorcycle into a truck. Another time, he crushed a light bulb and swallowed the glass. He attempted to hang himself, and he also attempted to overdose on his prescription medication a couple of times. Courtney, I know we talked about this a bit with Charles Cullen. Some of these suicide attempts seem very much like he wanted to die. There were 13 attempts in all um, that were made. Why do you think he was not successful at least once? I mean,
0: honestly, with that many attempts, his surviving all of them may just have been kind of dumb luck.
1: So you think some of them were, if not all of them, were actual attempts and not just like,
0: I'm just going to do... Just a, a little bit of glass.
1: That I, I think know so. Won't kill me. Okay.
0: Right. I mean, if you're going to like run your motorcycle into another vehicle, mm-hmm. like that is right. a, a very high risk behavior.
1: Right. And they, I'm assuming back then they didn't wear helmets.
0: <laughs> At least they weren't required to. Yeah. yeah.
1: Gary was often admitted into hospitals after these attempts. He would go voluntarily much of the time, but he didn't always cooperate once there. He was known for going mute for weeks on end. Sometimes he would write on paper, but often he would just check out mentally, or that's how it seemed. One of his diagnoses was a form of catatonia, in fact. When he did take tests, they found his IQ to be in the superior range at the 95th percentile. He would also score highly on personality type tests. It was revealed that Gary needed to be in an authorita- authoritative role. He needed to be in power. Courtney, we've learned that so much violent and sexual crime is committed because the perpetrator needs to have power over another. Right. And Gary,
0: particularly, could be susceptible to craving power and control, given how powerless and ashamed he likely felt um, when he was enduring the abuse from his father.
1: Right. I mean, you are so powerless when you're being dangled over a window or outside of a window by your ankle. Exactly. Yeah. Gary began to be hospitalized constantly. He would have to um, have a hospital employee basically watch him at all times because he would try to kill himself in the hospital. He would hoard his medications to take a massive amount at once. He one time tied a string around his toe to induce, induce gangrene and hoped that that would kill him. He would continue to go mute. At one point, he was admitted because he hit his brother with the piece of wood. Terry was convalescing in the hospital when Gary came by. Terry asked him, quote, "'What if you had killed me?' To which Gary replied, quote, I would have put your body in the bathtub and poured acid over it to dissolve the bones. I would have had to be careful while mixing the acid, though, because I wouldn't want to damage the drain pipes. I would leave you there to soak for two or three days, and if there were any big bones left, I'd saw them up and put them into the trash compactor. Then I'd distribute them around the neighborhood in various cans.
0: Courtney? Well, I mean,
1: clearly he had thought about this before. Can you just imagine being his brother like, what the fuck? <laughs> Right. I wish I hadn't asked right like were you trying to kill me (laughs) It sounds like it he had a freaking plan but yeah there weren't any hospitalizations for Gary in Pennsylvania between 1972 and 1978 although that does not mean that during that time he was not hospitalized like in maybe another state or a private institution that they just didn't have access to the records prior to 1972 he was in mental institutions possibly more than he was out of them He disregarded most of his personal hygiene. He, like, smelled awful, right? He would roll up a pant leg when he didn't want to talk to anyone, and he would use a military salute almost compulsively. The psychiatrist on staff um, kind of figured that he was, like, a lifer. That's kind of the consensus. Yeah, and I mean, just kind of want to note that his
0: odd behaviors that you've described um, are all actually pretty characteristic of someone experiencing psychosis, you know, bizarre communication, selective mutism, strange hygiene and dress, and even catatonia, um, which is sort of like being awake but completely non-responsive to outside stimuli. Um, They're all common symptoms of of psychosis. Um, And also, you know, psychosis is connected to increased risk of suicide and and suicidal behaviors.
1: So with selective mutism, is it a voluntary thing where they're like consciously like I'm not going to talk or is it more like something that's out of their control and they're subconsciously not even doing it they're just not talking um what do you think
0: it is a both and situation Mm -hmm. you know I think sometimes it might start as like I just don't want to talk um or in some particular cases it might be a choice but I think kind of where where Gary was given the severity of kind of the other symptoms he displayed Um, I think it was most likely something that he was not fully in control of.
1: In a case where mutism is something that someone's fully in control of, is that, do you think the motivating factor, just something to be in control of? Um, that
0: is definitely, you know, something that can be a big part of it. Mm -hmm. Um, anxiety is also a big part of it. Um, and so, I mean, anxiety and lack of control are often tied together as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, in 1971, Gary had an epiphany. He was in Philly and decided to go get a donut. Well, he got in his car and he kept on going west. And the donut run took him all the way to California to the Pacific Ocean. There he claimed that he was visited by God. God told him to go back to Philadelphia and to start a new church that would care for the mentally and physically disabled. Jesus also visited him during this time in his life and gave him stock stock market tips. Gary did as he was commanded, and during one of his stays in a mental hospital, applied to incorporate the United Church of the Ministers of God. He was approved. The other founding members were his brother Terry, and a mentally disabled woman that um, he was then living with, along with a few others. Gary was made bishop of this church, and through the bylaws, he would rule the church for life. As the bishop, he would be in control of any and all church funds— He played the stock market, perhaps using the tips that he said he received from Jesus, and he actually did very well. He invested $1,500 that would grow to over $500,000. When Gary was not in mental hospitals, he would preach. He would try to help the congregation learn to read, and he would play hymns on a stereo. The church would later be picked apart by lawyers, you know, like, was it a church? Was it a cult? Was it a scam? I don't know. Courtney, what are your thoughts on this? Do you think that some cult leaders may suffer from schizophrenia and may really feel that some outside force commanded them to create a church? What about Gary?
0: So based on my research, I don't think that schizophrenia specifically is common for cult leaders as leading a a cult or organization, um, it just requires so much, so much more organization and planning than most people with schizophrenia are able to do. Um, especially if they're like unmedicated, that kind of thing. Um, but the most common mental illness associated with cult leaders is narcissistic personality disorder. Surprise. Mm -hmm. Um, but there is a small number that may suffer from a delusional disorder. So delusions, which are kind of like firmly held false beliefs, can be present without any other psychotic symptoms. And so these leaders truly believe in what they are preaching and predicting. And that pure conviction can be enticing and convincing to others and can ultimately lead to what's kind of known as a shared delusion. So it starts with one guy and then all the followers come to share that delusion with him. Um, and so I think it's possible that Gary fell into this category, um, where he genuinely maybe believed that he was called by God, uh, but that when his other symptoms were in remission or you know not so um, not so present, he was able to use his business savvy and his intelligence to kind of take advantage of his parishioners.
1: Well, Gary's legal troubles started when um, he was first arrested. It's the first on, on record that we know of in 1976. He was charged with aggravated assault, carrying a firearm without a license, and doing so on public streets. It actually seemed like he should have been charged with attempted murder as he shot a pistol at a man's face. The man turned his head just in time and avoided being the target. The charges were dismissed with no reason given. Almost two years after that, he was in trouble with the law again. At this time, he was living with an with and impregnated a mentally disabled black woman, then starved her. By the time she gave birth, she had only gained five pounds due to his diet restrictions. The baby was put into a foster home. After that, Gary and his girlfriend visited her mentally disabled sister, who was living in a facility near Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Now, Gary's IQ was tested about 130. His girlfriend, and Jeanette, who had um, who had the baby that they was now in the foster system was tested to be around 40 and Anjanette's sister who was in this facility was 30. Gary filled out paperwork to take Alberta that's the sister out for the day and he did not return her as promised. Nine days later a court order was sent to Gary demanding that he return Alberta to the facility that she had been living in. Gary told the woman that Alberta was not at his house. He let her look around and she was nowhere to be seen. Gary claimed that he put her on the bus back to the facility when he was supposed to. The next day, they went back, but with police this time. And instead of searching just, you know, Gary's particular dwelling, they searched the whole building and they found Alberta in a storage room in the basement. The poor woman was terrified and shaking. And when she saw the worker from the facility, she ran into her arms, so happy to have been rescued. When they did a medical exam on Alberta, they found evidence of recent sexual intercourse. They found sperm in her mouth and gonorrhea in her throat. Three weeks later, Gary was arrested for rape, kidnapping, false imprisonment, involuntary deviant sexual intercourse, unlawful restraint, interfering with the custody of a committed person, and reckless endangerment. He pled not guilty. He was negative for gonorrhea, but who knows? Perhaps he had been treated in those three weeks. You know, could have been him. He ended up getting three to seven years because most of the charges had to be dropped. Um, Alberta was deemed not able to testify because of her low IQ.
0: Courtney? So, you know, clearly Gary had identified a population that he felt safe with and felt he could control easily, you know, back in the 1970s and before there was no real distinction between the mentally ill and intellectually disabled. When it came to institutionalization, everyone was just housed together. So Gary likely was drawn to this population while he was in the hospital Because even with his mental illness, he was intelligent enough to recognize that he could control and manipulate them to do what he wanted. You know, he wasn't really successful at cultivating relationships with women out in the real world, um, at least women who were not also intellectually disabled. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he found a way to get his sexual needs met with women that he could wield power over.
1: Gary would not go to prison for, you know, after this conviction, but he would be sent from mental hospital to mental hospital for four years. He, of course, went mute after two years. When asked why he wouldn't speak, he would write down that the devil had shoved a cookie down his throat. When he was released, he was to be under state supervision for three years, but it just did not stop him from what he had already begun to do. Courtney, anything
0: else? I think, you know, what we will see going forward is kind of the the impact of the lax, like, policies, I think, back in the day mm-hmm. of, like, hospitalization and, you know, returning to the community with proper supports and things like that, you know, because, yes, you know, Gary was to be under state supervision for three years, but who was actually there making sure that he went to his therapy appointments Mm -hmm. and took his medication and all of that. Because I think in a lot of ways he sort of slipped through the cracks.
1: Sure. Yeah, it's a big city. So there's Mm -hmm. probably, you know, more work than people to do the work. As with everything that's like DHS-centric. Right, You know what I mean, those kinds of agencies. Mm -hmm. There's too much work to do. So things happen and people don't always get the care that they need or the looking after that they need. Right. Exactly. Yeah. But that's where we're going to stop for the day. Um, Yeah. Anything else you want to add? No, I think that that's a good
0: place to end before okay. we, yeah, next, next time will be interesting. It's a, it always is. It, yeah. This is a crazy,
1: mm-hmm. we say this is a crazy case. They're all crazy cases. Um, but I always enjoy it when we kind of go over a new type of mental disorder, right? So schizophrenia, right? you know, so it's just going to look a lot differently than some of the other cases, most of the other cases that we've presented. So that's always fun for me. Yeah. And hopefully for you listeners as well. Fun for me too, because I get to nerd out a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Well, everyone stay safe and we'll see you next Tuesday. Bye. Bye.